I'm always fascinated by, by ancient maps, to, to look at them and see how the contours that those early cartographers saw of the continents and how they've changed. I look at the yellowed edges and I begin to imagine a 17th century explorer like Henry Hudson sketching out the, the landmass that would become later the site of New York and, and exploring the river that would later bear his name and that people who came then to that region would unroll that carefully sketched out land as they settled that part of the world since that time. Maps, of course, have dozens and hundreds of cities and red and blue lines for roads and all kinds of things on those maps that we pick up at our AAA. And while the outlines of continents have remained unchanged relatively for the last few centuries, the political maps change almost every year. I, I was thinking the other day, since, since I've been born, the United States have, has added two states. Dozens and dozens and dozens of, of changes have taken place in Europe and Asia and Africa with regard to countries. When I was in high school, I knew where to find Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia and Rhodesia and lots of other countries on the map that are no longer on the map. Even the land masses, uh, the, the land, the, the borders have changed. Every year, something changes on the political maps. A pilot uses maps as well, but it's not, it's not the state-by-state -state maps that we have. They're called sectional maps because it's not the roads that are so important or the state borders that are so important. It is the vectors and the navigational and radio beacons and the restricted regions and the controlled airspace zones and the mountains and the towers and other elevated objects that a pilot has to be concerned with. Those maps are just as vital, if not more so, than a AAA road map but they look altogether different. Add to those maps, celestial maps that point out the, the galaxies, the stars, the constellations. That looks altogether different too. And for most of us today, our map is in a little electronic box with an irritating voice that tells us where to turn and when to go and when not to go and when to turn around and when we've messed up. Probably more of us use GPS today than we do an actual map. But there's something about holding a map in my hands that makes me feel like I know what is ahead. Many years ago, we were on vacation. The girls were little. And I don't remember where we were at the time that it happened, nor do I remember why Elsie went to the back seat and Rebecca came to the front seat with me. But she got into her seat. And so since she was there, I decided, well, she would be my helper. And so I handed her a map and she unfolded it and laid it out on her lap. And she studied it intently for a couple minutes. And, and I began to tell her things to look for, you know, on the road. And then finally she looked up at me and smiled and she said, I feel like a mini mom. <laughs> and I said, oh, why is that? And she says, because I get to tell you where to go. <laughs> Maps tell us where to go. A map is designed to provide direction. Now, I know a lot of people who think the last book of the Bible is called Maps. But that's not true. It's just those navigational tools in the back that help you understand Bible lines, lands at the time the events took place. But really, when you stop and think about it, the whole Bible is a map. It is God's direction. It is to help us understand where he is leading us. It is our spiritual GPS. And one of those destinations that God takes us in his incredible map is the commitment to family relations. 
From the beginning, God spelled out a route toward lasting relationships that you and I need to follow. As a matter of fact, if your family relationships are spiritually directed, emotionally healthy, and devotedly strong, then you will be able to build quality relationships in other arenas of your life, friendships and social relationships and business partnerships. If you get the family relationships right, if you follow God's map to its destination, then that will spill over into every other relationship that we experience. So what does God have to say about the direction of family relationships? Well, I want to take you back to the book of Genesis, and I wish I had time to read all three chapters in the sermon. I do not. So let me tell you what takes place in the three chapters, and if you're looking for something to read today, go home and read those first three chapters and check out those marvelous details. That's where the first signpost is planted about the direction to good family relationships. It's where God begins his map. And like a cartographer sketches the contours of the earth so that others who are yet to come will know their way, so God maps out the contours of relationships for all of us who have followed our original parents. It's interesting to me that when you read the first three chapters of Genesis, we get hung up on the how and the what of creation. Was it six literal days? Was it six eons of time? And on the seventh day, God rested. And and we get caught up in how did Satan take on the form of that serpent? And in the process of discussing these important questions, we overlook what I think is the most important. It's not the how of creation that matters. It's the why. The whole first three chapters of Genesis, God is trying to get us to see why he did this why he created the heavens and the earth, and why he created us as he did. You see, every map has a legend which explains how the map should be interpreted. A map legend is a key to all the symbols used on the map, and like a dictionary, you can understand the meaning of what the map represents, what colors depict various kinds of roads, the conversion scale of inches to miles, discovering scenic byways, and you go on down the list. It is in the garden that God gave us the legend for his relational map. He tells us why creation happened. And the why is simply this. It's all about relationships. And in the creation story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I want you to know I believe it's a true story, but in that story, God gives us the relationships that are important to him that he wants us to recognize. And the first one is just the relationship with creation itself. In the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam the gift of a job. He became the gardener of the garden. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he was to have dominion over the earth. And that word dominion does not mean Uh, subjecting it abusively or or lording over, it means to care for, to provide and to take care of God's creation. So this first relationship God introduces us to is the very creation of his world to take care. And And I really believe, I really believe we Christians ought to be great caretakers of God's creation, being careful to maintain its purity as best we can. I think that's a way of of honoring God. Recycling and protecting our natural resources is a way of expressing concern for the grandeur of God's creation, keeping that in balance with everything. So God wanted us to have a relationship with creation, and and they gave Adam the job of, of work, which is a beautiful thing. The second thing was he wanted us to understand this relationship of family. In chapter 2 is the story where the family is created. 
Adam was alone, and, and that wasn't good. God said it wasn't good. Adam knew it wasn't good. Adam couldn't find anything or anyone in the animal kingdom that seemed to be a suitable companion for him, and so God created Eve. Put Adam to sleep, took a rib out of his side, and formed Eve. Someone wrote it tenderly. You've heard it before, but it, it's worth hearing again. God took a rib from Adam's side to form Eve, not from his head that she should dominate him, nor from his feet that she should be under him, but from his side that she should be next to him. I think that's a beautiful picture of what God was doing. He was creating a home. He was creating a marriage. He was creating a family here. And from the very beginning, marriage and the family have been a part of God's design. So cherish your family ties, your family relationships as a grand gift from God because that's part of the very why of creation. And then the most important why of creation is God. We've been made in God's image. Do you know that's not said of the animals or the objects of creation? No animal is guilty of moral or spiritual sin, nor do animals consciously glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what does it mean to be made in God's image? We share personality with God. We have a mind, we have emotions, we have a will, we have choices. And in those choices, we are given responsibility and freedom. Adam and Eve were free to either obey or disobey, and then they were responsible for the choices and the actions they made. We were made for this special relationship with God. Here lies our true worth, the main reason for relationships. In him, we have value, we have purpose, we have meaning. We are not the product of random chance or random mutations. We are loved by the divine creator in a way that he does not, and I would suggest he cannot love the animals, plants, or inanimate matter of his grand design. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love his creation. He just doesn't love it like he loves us. We were the pinnacle of his creation because he chose to have someone to whom to express his love, and in hopes that that love would be expressed back to him. Moreover, he identifies with us in Christ, grieves with us in our sorrow, rejoices with us in our triumph, and even at times intervenes into our life to protect us. It is incredible to me, folks, that the God of the universe, the God that spoke it all into existence, wants a relationship with us. And that, again, makes Christianity different from any other major religion of the world. In all others, people are seeking to appease God. In Christianity, God has taken the initiative to seek his lost people. It is the only relationship, too, that will endure. Marriage will end when your spouse dies. Our relationship with creation will end when you die and I die. But if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, our relationship with God is eternal. Then came the fall. And unfortunately, unlike Vegas, what happened in the garden didn't stay in the garden. Those choices Adam and Eve made forever impacted us as individuals as well as families. And ever since, sin has played havoc with the most important relationships in our lives. Do you realize that when sin came into the presence of this world and broke what God had made perfect, that sin destroyed, first of all, our own personal relationship. 
That was the introduction of self-consciousness and low self-esteem and the other emotional problems that we struggle with today. Sin destroyed our spiritual relationship. Adam and Eve were suddenly estranged from God. They felt uncomfortable in his presence. They fled from him. They hid from him. They were fearful. Sin destroyed this incredible relationship that God had designed from the beginning. Sin destroyed our sociological relationships. In that moment, all the seeds of accusation, deceit, marital strife, divorce, codependency, and abuse were sown in the world. It would not be long before Adam and Eve knew the pain of losing a child. They would stand over the freshly dug grave and bury their youngest son, Abel, who had been killed by their older, angry son, Cain. And they were surely filled with regret for that momentary meal of forbidden fruit. Sin destroyed our environmental relationship. The land no longer cooperates in bringing forth a harvest. Man lost his dominion over nature. Weeds, tornadoes, hurricanes, droughts, floods all indicate that man is no longer in harmony with his environment. Creation is broken, and the book of Romans tells us that it groans for the day when it will be restored. And sin destroyed our physical relationship. God said, if you sin, you'll die. Since then, all humanity hastens toward the grave. Every beautiful baby that is born into your family, the day of his or her birth begins the process of dying. We still live with the consequences of that first sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 reads like this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Consequently, family life has become a challenge. It was a challenge in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. It is a challenge today in September of 2012. We, we are facing challenge after challenge in the family. It takes a lot of work, and it's not easy. A little girl asked her mother, how did the human race come to be? The mother answered, God made Adam and Eve. They had children, and so mankind was made. Later, the little girl asked her father the same question. The father gave her a different answer. Many years ago, there were monkeys from which the human race evolved. The confused girl returned to her mother and said, Mom, how is it possible that you told me the human race was created by God? And Dad said, we came from monkeys. And the mother smiled and answered, well, dear, it's very simple. I told you the story of our side of the family. Your father told you his side. <laughs> Unfortunately, in a broken world, bad patterns seem to persist from generation to generation until someone somewhere along the way breaks the chain. There are no quick fixes or easy methods to succeed in relationships. If there are destructive patterns in your relationship, if you have detoured off of God's relational highway, you've undoubtedly noticed how rough the road has become. The potholes are bigger, the surface is rocky, the obstacles are great, and the destination becomes unclear. The success of the relational journey seems very uncertain. Now is the time to turn around. Get back on course and break those destructive patterns once and for all. Our goal for the journey should be to create healthier homes and healthier families for the future. And throughout this month, we're going to take a look at the relationships that are vital to who we are, the reason for why God created us to, be, to begin with. But this morning, 
I want to simply give you three travel trips that can be applied to every relationship. You know, no family, no family is perfect. Every family is different. Every family has problems along the way. And I don't care what happens in your family, out of that family, these relational travel tips will make a difference. And, and they will really impact every relationship that you face, whether it's at work, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in your social settings. But they, they, they have to, I believe, they have to start in our family relationships because if, if we don't get them right there, we won't get them right anywhere. Now, we got a lot of warning signs on, on the platform this morning. There's a, a no parking anytime, one-way directional sign, no turn on red, cross traffic does not stop, a stop sign, stop light over here. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to drive anywhere without warning signs or informational signs or directional signs? How would you know a one-way street is one way without the sign? How, how, what would it be like for traffic to converge in an intersection if there were no stop signs? So these signs are, are incredibly important, and God gives us signs all along the route that help us. And, and, and so let, let me give you three travel tips this morning that, that are good for any relationship, but especially should apply to our, uh, our families. And the first one is simply this, communicate. One way to ensure strong family relationships is quality communication. Proverbs 13.2 says, from the fruit of his lips, a man enjoys good things. If you never communicate, you're likely not to enjoy much in family relationships. Proverbs 16.23, a wise man's heart guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. Communicate, communicate, communicate. The family today suffers from poor communication. I keep reading the same statistic over and over. It doesn't seem to get better with the passing of years that the average husband and wife spend four minutes a day in meaningful conversation. Now, that's meaningful. It doesn't mean that you, that's all you say. There's probably a lot of things that are said, but meaningful conversation. Statistically, the meaningful conversation is even less with parent to child. And you say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We spent an hour watching a television show together the other night. We both sat there and enjoyed it, had a wonderful time. And I, and I can tell you, I love those kind of dates as well. But you probably didn't communicate anything during the, you just watched the show together, enjoyed it, maybe laughed together, maybe said, well, not a great scene. But that's not meaningful conversation. Use words, facial expression, intonation, and body language to make sure that the message gets through. That's why email is so lacking, because you don't get facial expressions and intonation and body language and heart for the message to get through. And it's always better to over-communicate. Few of us do that. And the more who are in the family, the more you need to over-communicate. Inevitably, you will think you have told everybody and somebody say, I didn't hear that. I didn't know that. Maybe you didn't tell them when they were in the room. Maybe they weren't present. You thought the whole family was. Or maybe they weren't listening carefully when you did say it. Over-communicate. Be intentional about communicating. Converse, talk, speak, tell, verbalize, articulate, express, share, chat, utter, whisper, cheer, encourage. However you can do it, do it. Communicate. I have never seen a family in in strife or crisis where communication, or I should say the lack of communication, wasn't at a foundational level in the crisis itself. 
Jesus always took time to talk to his Father. What do you think we ought to learn about that example? God calls us to speak the truth in our communication, to act upon the truth, to love and to live the truth in our communication. Truth always speaks the loudest. I like what uh, retired TV anchor Ted Koppel once said. He said, almost everything that is publicly said these days is recorded. Almost nothing of what is said is worth remembering. I think we think we communicate well because we talk a lot, but maybe the stuff that we say isn't worth remembering. Make it meaningful conversation. Keep those lines open. And care. Yield to doing what is best for one another. Put others first. When we think of the great commandment to love God and love others, we think of those who are outside the church family first. I don't know why we do this. I do the same thing. We talked a lot about the great commandment last Sunday when we were talking about the last of the Ten Commandments, you know, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the, and the moment I hear that, and love your neighbor as yourself, my mind immediately goes outside these walls or outside the walls of my own home, and I'm thinking about other people that maybe I know and maybe I don't know. And I have an obligation to do my best to serve them and to let Christ be seen in me in my actions toward them. What we, what we forget with the great commandment is that it doesn't begin outside the walls, it begins inside the walls first. Your first neighbor is the one closest to you. It's your wife and your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters. It's the members of your own family because you can't take care of the world if you don't take care of your family first. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Dads, moms, we have an obligation to take care of our kids first before we take care of the kids in the neighborhood. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially those of his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So how do your actions demonstrate to those that you love that they are more important than anybody else? Do you spend more time with your loved ones? than you spend on your hobbies and your interests? Are you there for your kids when something as special is going on in their lives? Do you ch tell your children not to do something that you yourself do? Are your words hypocritical of your actions? Do you profess a Christian commitment that you live out on a Sunday but you don't live out during the week and so your kids watch this, your wife or your husband watches this and sees an inconsistency in who you claim to be and who you are? Does your spouse know that you love her or him based on what you do as well as what you say? Care for your family. If you win the whole world for Christ and you lose your family in the process, how can that possibly be success? Start at home. The great commandment begins at home. Love God and love others starting with your family. And then the last travel tip is commit. Stop sabotaging your relationships with a lack of commitment. This is most important. Commitment is the key word to your relationships. The greatest barrier to strong families today is a lack of devotion and loyalty because we want to keep all of our options 
open. That's our culture. Do you ever, do you ever join a book club? Once you join a book club, you know, you, oh, this is a really great deal, and then they start saying, once you do that, you start getting piled on by all kinds of ads for, for all kinds of things. I mean, it, it just opens you up to all kinds. Of, and most of the time, it starts like this. Buy one book at a regular price and buy three more for only a dollar. And then they'll add this next line. Absolutely no commitment. And I think, wow, that's the hook. Wow, I don't have to do anything more. What a bargain, what a deal. No commitment to this. And so we have this mentality so often in our culture today is that I need to keep all of the doors open. I need to keep every path available. I want all of my options. But what may be good for book sales is disastrous for family relationships. Commitment is often defined as a pledge or an undertaking or a dedication. Regarding family, it is someone who is entrusted to you for safekeeping. But the best description of commitment I've read comes from author Scott Stanley, and he writes this, commitment involves making the choice to give up some choices. That's it. Keeping commitments require that we recognize the need to give up some other paths once we make our choice. When you got married, you said, I do, and that shut the door on the other choices. When you chose to become a parent and bring children into this world, that shuts the door on some other choices of your free time. Any choice we make demands commitment in marriage, in family, in parenting, you name it. That's the key to success, commitment. And in our culture, it's hard to find. During the 9-11 disaster and the interviews that ensued afterwards, then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani continued to praise uh, the firefighters and those of uh, the, the community who rushed into those buildings when everybody was rushing out. On one of those Sunday afternoon talk shows uh, that he was interviewed on so often, he again praised the, the gallant warriors who went in and expressed his gratitude. And, and the, the interviewer interrupted him with this question. He said, Mr. Mayor, what surprised you most about the commitment of these men to their jobs? To which the mayor simply said, why nothing? Nothing surprised me. You see, that's a picture of commitment. When you do in the face of disaster what is the right thing to do, that kind of commitment is what we all aspire to. And that's the kind that's needed in our families and nobody should ever be surprised that we act that way in our relationships. I want your family life to be filled with high hopes. I really do. But hope for the future is only possible when we learn to communicate with, care for, and commit to the members of our families. Without these biblical principles at work, family life will be a rough road. You'll get mired down in the muck and the mud on the shoulder of the road. And when that happens, the only hope you'll find on the journey will be a little town by that name in Bartholomew County. But I'm here to tell you, Hope, Indiana, is not the hope you need for your family. Of all the destinations God has spelled out in his word, these family relationships are key. Because I, I, I'm not sure if we don't get that right that we'll get the ultimate destination right either. If home isn't right here, how do you look forward to home there? And you see, that's really where the destination is leading.
God is calling us home through Jesus Christ. The map is clear. The way is straight and narrow. It's easily missed if you're not watching for it. And there is but one way you know, and you know who he is. He's Jesus Christ. He's the way home. Is he your Savior this morning? I hope for your family. I hope for your ultimate destination. But that hope is nothing without him.